psychology. It's more than a philosophy, more than a psychology, more than just an ecology, bigger than biology, larger than anthropology, brushes against astrology. That's prophecology. Master Prophet Ibrahim on Jordan, your most trusted name in prophecy. We're going to get ready and read the, bi the biology, the biology, the bi biography of um, this great professor. And uh, we are honored. And so, um, Prophet Stephen, go ahead. Amen. Reverend Dr. James Henry Harris is the Distinguished Professor and Chair of the Homiletics and Practical Theology and Research Scholar in Religion at the School of Theology, Virginia Union, Union University, and Pastor of Second Baptist Church, West End, both in Richmond, Virginia. He is one of the 10 children born to Richard and Carrie Anna Harris in Chesterfield County, Virginia. He has a passion for teaching, preaching, and helping the poor and the oppressed. Dr. Harris works hard to make sure that the young people in his church and community finish high school and attend college or trade school. He has earned the Masters of Arts in Philosophical Theology from the University of Virginia the Master of Arts in English and African American Literature from the Virginia Commonwealth University, and the Masters of Arts in Philosophy from Old Dominion University, where he also received the PhD in Urban Studies. He earned the Doctor of Ministry degree in Preaching and African American Church Studies from the Union Theological Seminary in Dayton, Ohio, as a Samuel DeWitt Proctor and Charles Booth Fellow. He's the former president of the North American Academy of Homiletics and the Urban Coalition of Social Change. At the age of 23, he earned the Master's of Divinity degree from the School of Theology, Virginia Union University, and that same year became pastor of Mount Pleasant Baptist Church in Norfolk, Virginia. Dr. Harris has taught preaching at the National Baptist Congress of Christian Education, the American Baptist Churches of the South, and for local churches and pastors. He has been a visiting professor of homiletics at Princeton Theological Seminary, Princeton, New Jersey, Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota, and currently teaches in the Acts Doctor of Ministry in Preaching program at McCormick Theological Seminary in Chicago, Illinois. He's author of several books, including No Longer Bound, A Theology of Reading and Preaching, The Forbidden Word, The Word Made Plain, the Power and the Promise of Preaching, Preaching Liberation, Pastoral Theology, A Black Church Perspective. Amen and amen. Ladies and gentlemen, the Reverend Dr. James Henry Harris.
All right, let's give him a hand. So, so Dr. Harris, I want to say we have some some of the students you know here. Um, Elder Bratton, you know. Um, go ahead and greet him and introduce him to your wife. God bless you, Dr. Harris. How are you, sir? It's great to see you, and uh, we're glad to have you with us again. And uh, my wife, uh, Elder Valina, who is just embarking on her Masters in Divinity, and uh, I just completed under your tutelage, and uh, we had a great time in your class. Uh, we accomplished some things. That was a great class. The book that we put together just was incredible. So it's great to see you, sir. Thank you. Thank you for the honor. Okay. And you also, um, know th someone else you know, my wife is here, um, Pastor Deborah Jordan, who's going to be starting in Virginia Union this year as well in the master's program as well. And um, this is my wife. Of, this year will be 42 years we've been married. Wow. Then we have... Um, Ernesto Valdez, I don't think you, I don't think um, he had your classes. He, he started at Virginia Union, he's coming back this year. This is Ernesto Valdez. Bless the, you, how are you, Dr. Harris? Ernesto. Bless you, bless you. Looking forward to all of your teachers and learning from one of the best. Thank you. And then you have um, Jonathan, um, Jonathan Powell, who'll be starting at STVU this year in the master's program. Go ahead and greet Dr. Harris. Jonathan. Dr. Harris enjoyed your book immensely and um, got some really great notes. If by chance you hear some of this stuff in a sermon, I promise at some point there will be a tithe sent to you on it. It was great stuff in here. Great preaching points in a flat Excellent. too. <laughs> yeah, well, well, for, the, for the sermon, you, you know, it's, it, you have you have to do 50%, not just the fact. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's what's up. up. That's what's up. <laughs> and, Absolutely. And then we have Stephen Brown, who is also going to be starting in Virginia Union this year in the Masters in the MDiv program as well. He just graduated from NIAC College, and he will be coming over to STVU. Stephen Brown, who was reading the bio. God bless you and welcome to uh, Zoe Ministries and I'm looking forward to learning more from you, Dr. Harris. Thank you, Stephen, I'm honored. All right, and then uh, is Joshua's mic working now? Oh, you gotta go over there. We'll hear from Joshua uh, and Jessica. Their mic is not working, but it's not coincidental. You know, you, you know they're always on time, Dr. Harris. Well, there it is. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> Listen. I'm, listen, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just blessed they're not in the Caribbean somewhere. Well, right. Well, there you go. <laughs> the last time they were in my class, they were on a cruise. Right. <laughs> Lord. Yeah. So, uh, so you'll be hearing from them in a little bit. They just have to go over there. Okay, Dr. Harris, um, how do you... How, how do we be? How do you want to begin tonight with black suffering? And I want to encourage everyone to go to Amazon.com or wherever you can, wherever you can, wherever you get your books. Get this book, Black Suffering: Silent Pain, Hidden Hope, by Dr. James Henry Harris. And you really need to get all of his books. One of the books that um, blessed me was the Tyranny of the Text. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You'll uh, really enjoy that. A couple of you have read that here. 
and um, he's gotten some um, no longer bound, amen. But if you want to listen to one of the most modern day liberation um, professors that's dealing with liberation theology and really dealing with the plight of our people, I would say his books is a great starting point to start to decolonize your faith mm -hmm. and get a reality check on what your faith can look like in the space of black suffering. Okay, Dr. Harris, which direction would you like to go today? Um, Bishop, it's really up to you. I, I, let me just say a few words about the book first, okay? Sure. And then, and then I'll turn it back over to you. Okay? Okay. All right. Um, it, first of all, let me just say that it, it took me um, probably about uh, 12 to 15 years to write Black Suffering. Black Suffering is, is, a, is a, a challenge. It's difficult. Uh, the topic is difficult. The writing of the book was a, a challenge as well. Um, but one of the things that I argue in the book is that black suffering is uh, ubiquitous. That is, it's everywhere, everywhere you turn. You get up in the morning, step out the door, you encounter some kind of uh, attitude or action on the part of, of society. So black suffering is is uh, is is so much a part of of black life that oftentimes it is perceived as um, as as something that we're not even conscious of. And I think I think that the book reminds us of the fact that uh, you know that we that we as a people uh, suffer tremendously. Now. The book also tries to make the distinction between the fact that uh, it's it's a given that everybody suffers, but black suffering is a unique phenomenon that extends beyond uh, the ordinary suffering of humans. And um, I, be I began thinking about uh, about this book on various occasions. And then it culminated in my being invited to do the Hampton University lectures, I think in 2016 or 2017, or some, somewhere around that time. And I had to collate uh, all of my thoughts and put them all together. And they culminated in the writing of this book on Black Soccer. The book is what I call a mixed tape because it deals with all kinds of things. It, it doesn't just deal with, uh, you know, the um, the complexities of black suffering, but I try to demonstrate black suffering in uh, writing short stories that are embedded throughout the book. Um, and and so I think when I um, when I first got on tonight, I was listening to uh, to uh, Elder or Bishop Bratton speak about uh, one of the short stories in the book. I um, I believe it's. Uh, uh, the Brothers of Randolph Street, mm -hmm. that talks about the suffering that black people endure on a regular basis. But the entire book does that. So that's kind of like where we are. And I know um, um, Bishop Jordan, you have studied the book rather meticulously. And there may be some things there that uh, 
that have struck you and uh, that you want to talk about, you can just proceed in whatever direction you'd like. Yes. Um, I thought it was quite interesting, Dr. Harris, when, in, in, in your book, where, um, and you're quoting something, too, from um, Kelly, um, Dr. Kelly Douglas, and where she begins to um, make a statement about whiteness um, and begin to deal with that, um, you know, that black suffering is grounded in the experience of being hated, other, um, the victim of American materialism, exceptionalism, and grand narrative of the American identity shape and shown by Jeffersonian Anglo-Saxon myth. Um, can you help me understand when Dr. Douglas is mentioning Jeffersonian Anglo-Saxon myth, what does that particular, what does that consist of? Uh, well, my thinking is that uh, she's talking about the the mythology that surrounds American exceptionalism that is grounded in Jeffersonian philosophy and practice. In other words, uh, Jefferson and others have postulated that you know America is an exceptional uh, country in all kinds of positive ways, and um, I think for Black people. The exceptionalism of America resides in the fact that it has uh, 300 plus years of treating uh, blacks and mistreating blacks as slaves and as chattel. So that is one of the things that uh, that Kelly Brown Douglas uh, talks about uh, in her book. But all of it fits under the category of American exceptionalism, where America thinks that she is the uh, exception to all of the other uh, crimes and other things that go on in the world. And as black people, we know better because we have been victims of uh, America's uh, perspective and philosophy. And uh, black people have built this, built this country. The country was built on the backs of blacks. And, um, and so I think that's one of the things that she gets at. And one of, that's the reason I quoted her, I think, in Black Stuff. Yes. And um, I, when you quoted this, and what would some of you, what, what others were saying about when people arrived here from JFK, what did y'all gather from that about whiteness? Uh, the, the, the call to be white in America, when, when um, I, I, the reference was when you, when you land in JFK, you, you, you no longer are Irish or Turkish or Russian, you equate to being white so that you can assimilate and live in this society. In the, in the, in the book, uh, it says, uh, so that you can stay alive, so that you can deal with the police, if you can, so that you can live in those, those structures in America, white is the way to win versus the nationality aspect. Dr. Harris, is this somewhat part of the silent pain that may be going on when your book is speaking about silent pain? Yeah, silent pain is a complex uh, concept in the sense that 
Um, you know, I've been thinking about that because it has come up in a lot of our discussions. I think the fact that that the pain of blacks is just not heard. And in that sense, you know, I talk about it as being uh, silent. Um, it is true that we have expressed our pain and our concern and so forth. But I think to a large extent, it is silent in the sense that it goes unheard by others, goes unheard by those who who perpetrate the pain against, um, against black people in America. And um, so I think that's, that's a part of it. And in the book, I talk about, you know, the, uh, the silent pain of the minister, of, of the pastor, who, uh, who, you know, endures a lot of, of pain and struggle and still has to encourage others, has to preach on Sundays, has to do all kinds of other things. And unfortunately, um, some ministers even, um, you know, address their pain in some, uh, some with some level of negativity, without dealing with it as well. I'm thinking more and more now that all of us, no matter who we are, are would benefit from, uh, you know, some kind of counseling, uh, some kind of mental health um, intervention. Those are the kinds of things because. Uh, silent pain in black life is so endemic to the point that, you know, there is nobody uh, that uh, the minister particularly uh, feels comfortable in reaching out to. And I think that has to change. One of the reasons it has to change, because as you know, and as everybody knows, that we don't concentrate on the mental health of people in this country. And we definitely yeah. don't concentrate on the mental health of pastors. And I think that the pandemic has uh, affected the mental health of a lot of us. I know it has affected my own mental health. Yes. Uh, you know, Dr. Harris, you know, um, I'm doing my dissertation on um, mental health dealing from co um, 1619 to COVID-19. So um, some of the things in your work that I've been looking at um, in reference to this whole concept of silent pain is that uh, like if I'm going into a store and all of a sudden I am ignored because I'm talking to the salesperson. salesperson and someone white comes in and come right into the middle of it mm -hmm. and just interrupt. I used to be silent about that. Now I make noise about it after reading your book because I realize just shoving it and eating it and just going along with it and just walking away quietly angry was adding to the silent pain mm -hmm. and 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 perpetuating and perpetuating the, the black suffering Absolutely. that I am experienced in the midst of hoping for a you know I got this hit and hope that one day is going to get better right. but each day is getting worse and worse and so as the black preacher we preach love we preach we shall overcome, but yet there is this silent pain mm -hmm. that is happening underneath, and in the name of peace, mm -hmm. we are silently, constantly mm -hmm. in pain. It's managing your blackness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, managing your blackness, right. I like that. <laughs> um, is, is Joshua's mic up? Okay, Joshua and Jessica, would y'all like to say anything in reference to this? Yes. And, greet, and, and greet the professor. Yes, well, good evening. Good Dr. evening, Dr. Harris. Dr. Harris. 
Two of my favorite students. Y'all looking good. Thank you. You look excellent as you well. You look excellent as well, Dr. Harris. You look like you just stepped out of a GQ magazine. Both of them. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Harris. You know, what I wanted to say here as we're talking about um, the silent pain, one of the things that was brought up for me is as a black mother in America, one of the things that we find that we're dealing with in childbirth, for instance, and going to hospitals is that our pain isn't being acknowledged as pain. It's almost like those same conversations that existed from the times of slavery in terms of looking at a black woman and looking at how we process pain or whether or not our pain is actually real is still being dismissed. We see that black mothers die at a higher rate than white mothers or really any other ethnicity when it comes to things like giving birth. Um, we notice that, so we start to see, as Archbishop was saying, you start to see that pain, that silent pain that we have to go through play out in so many different ways. And it's just now recently that you start seeing these conversations start to happen where people are no longer being silent um, about this pain that black families are having to go through. Here we are trying to be hopeful about a future and a future for our children when so many mothers aren't even living to see their, the life of their child because they're dying at birth. No, Jessica, you're absolutely right. I, I know uh, Joshua may have something to say about that. But yes, I mean, clearly, I think today, those of us in ministry and in the pastorate, we have to encourage black people to um, to not keep silent about their pain. Speak up. Because uh, there there is something to this notion that um, a lot of white people feel that black people don't experience pain. Mm -hmm. And I think that comes from the fact that blacks were treated like animals during slavery, hanged from trees, castrated, um, treated in some of the cruel and debased means uh, that you can think of. Now, black people have all experienced the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the cross. Mm -hmm. the, the difference is we have experienced Jesus' crucifixion for 300 years. And we continue to experience it. And I think because of that, um, because of that history, physicians and, and, uh, and psychiatrists and other people tend to act like black folk are not in pain. You can complain, 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 and still get no remedy for your complaint. I think about the tennis star, uh, uh, Serena Williams, mm -hmm. when she had her baby, mm -hmm. she almost died because she complained to the physicians and they ignore it. Mm. And they continue to do that uh, in black life. I'm sure that a lot of women who have testimonies uh, about this. As a matter of fact, my, my own uh, uh, sister-in-law, uh, Dr. Charlotte McSwain, who is on the call, that talks about the same kind of thing when she uh, was having her baby. So I think it's, I think it's, in, it's endemic, right. it's, and it's systemic. And I think, uh, Jessica, you put your finger right on it. Wow. You know, Dr. Harris, you also mentioned in your book, the story is a reflection of the silent pain, the individual pain, the community's um, silent pain, the church silent pain. It's like everything connected with our blackness is experiencing some form of silent pain. 
um, this trauma, and yet um, we don't have the mental health. You know, we've learned um, this past weekend, um, the preacher said, Reverend Chambers says, Pain is a great messenger, but a poor manager. Yes, he yes, 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 yes. You know, that pain is a great messenger, yeah. but it's a poor manager. Mm -hmm. uh, what would you say, Dr. Harris, is some of the best ways we can begin dealing with this silent pain that is happening as part of our black suffering? Yes, no, uh, uh, Bishop, that's a great question. It is a, that is a, a, a great, great question. I think that uh, that we have to start with an acknowledgement of the, an acknowledgement of the suffering and an acknowledgement of the pain. Now, you notice in the beginning of the book, I argue that uh, pretty much the thesis of the book is that um, there are so many who are unconscious about pain mm -hmm. and suffering, and this unconsciousness, um, you know, certainly, um, you know, is, is, is manifested in not even acknowledging it. And, and, um, and the fact that we, we suffer all the time and every day um, makes, it, makes it appear normal because it happens uh, so often. Okay. I, I think that the, the thing, even the example that you gave, that all of us have experienced something similar to that, if not identical. You know, when you when you go into a store as a, as a black person, uh, you either ignore it or you are followed in a suspicious way. Yes. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's one extreme or the other. And um, it, it reminds me of the fact that uh, you may recall some years ago, that uh, our first black female billionaire, uh, Oprah Winfrey, was shopping somewhere in Paris, I believe. Yes. And and she was picking up a uh, picking up a purse, a bag, and uh, you know the the um, the salesperson was following her around as if she were a thief. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, and assuming that because she was black, that she could not pay for this uh, $60,000 bag. Um, and, and that is, you know, that is a, that is the, the, the normalization of the way uh, blacks are treated, not just in the United States, but around the world. Oh. And I think we see that, we see that, uh, we see that over and over again. So to answer your question, uh, first, I think there has to be some kind of acknowledgement of it. And it's not easy to acknowledge it. And then after the acknowledgement of it, there has to be some kind of intervention. And that's even more complex and more difficult. Because as you know, I mean, the black church looks uh, derisively upon mental health, suffering mm -hmm. from mental health. The black church does not embrace mental health as it does physical health. I mean, if, if you have a physical problem, everybody understands you're going to the hospital or going to the doctor. If you have a mental problem, then somehow people tend to treat that in the church and outside of the church as uh, some kind of personal weakness, uh, some, some, something to be construed and perceived as negative. And I think that the, the role um, as it relates to mental uh, health, uh, that role has to be elevated by the black church itself, which is probably still, in my view, uh, the the most instrumental organization in black life. Mm. And 
probably the most important organization in black life. I know that's very difficult today because a lot of people would like to dismiss uh, the black church. I think um, I think that's a great mistake because I think that the hope uh, for black people in America still rests with the black church and with the black preacher in America. I don't hear anything that, uh, unfortunately, you know, that uh, that white churches and white preachers are saying to help transform our society at all. As a matter of fact, they are propagating the kinds of injustices and the kinds of oppressions that continue to exist in our society. And the, the only person speaking about injustices, uh, speaking about um, trying to right the wrongs that are, are so systemic in this country, uh, from my perspective, is the black preacher. And I would like to encourage uh, the black preacher to continue to do that because without that voice, uh, I shudder to think uh, where we as a people would be. Wow, wow. Prophet Joshua, you want to say something here? Oh, yes, most definitely. And, you know, Dr. Harris, I truly enjoyed this being a call to consciousness, a call to awakening ourselves from a slumber, of functioning in trauma, you know. And one of the things that I love is, you know, it's a call for us to get their foot, their, um, their foot off of our backs, off of our necks, off of our rib cage. Um, and I love what you begin to share um, with the juxtaposition between Hegel and Du Bois um, with self-consciousness and uh, this two-ness. And one of the words that stuck out to me is this um, whole notion of the black individual becoming aware of who he is, becoming aware of the trauma that one experiences. And I love the story that you shared, um, Dr. Harris, about John, I believe it was, um, about a boy by the name of John who um, was a good old boy um, and, 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 and had a happy disposition. Uh, but when he confronted racism, when he confronted uh, the knowledge that there was a veil, and that's what I love you, you shared, Dr. Harris, about the veil uh, that Du Bois speaks about. Uh, uh, but he, he acknowledged the veil of racism, um, how he became self-aware or self-conscious um, to his true self and, true, and to blackness um, or the oneness of self. Dr. Harris. Listen, listen, Josh, I agree with you 100%. That story, that story is, that's Du Bois' story about John. I'm, I'm quoting Du Bois on that story, but you're absolutely right in picking up that, uh, that notion, that, uh, that, that Du Boisian notion about coming to consciousness. Uh, in the story that uh, you referenced about John, John uh, goes off to college. Before he goes to college, you know, he's working in the fields, he's plowing, he's a farmhand. He goes off to college, he learns yeah. all of these other things. And uh, uh, Du Bois talks about the fact that when John, before John went off to college, he was happy-go-lucky. He was, he was just a happy person and so forth. He goes to college and learns all of these things. And he comes back and there's a, there's a kind of sadness that, that, uh, that overcomes his demeanor because he now has a greater sense of, of recognition and acknowledgement. And he understands his plight in a much better way. And he is no longer somebody that white folk can tell what to do and make do the menial things of life. So John has come to consciousness, and I think you are absolutely right. And I, let me just say uh, to the listeners, um, I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that Joshua has come to consciousness, and and I'm going to just reveal our conversation, Joshua, about the fact that you know that you you have this great love of becoming a biblical scholar, 
but uh, but when you met Harris, you now believe that uh, that you should just focus in homiletics. <laughs> and, uh, so I, I think that's great. <laughs> well, we, listen, listen we, need, we need great preachers and we need, we, need, we need great preachers who are as gifted as, as, uh, as, as you are, Joshua, and as you are, Jessica. We need, we need I mean, the, the black pulpit is in need of that. And mm. so I'm encouraging, I'm encouraging uh, young people, young scholars like, uh, like Joshua and Jessica, uh, you know, who have, uh, who have gone to some of our best colleges. I'm encouraging, uh, encouraging you and others like you, um, yes, to bring your talents and gifts uh, to the black church and to the pulpit. And, uh, and you know, and in, in doing that, you, you do, you also open up the Bible and you open up scripture, you open up theology, you open up people's minds, but you do it in a way that is not just limited to academe, you do it in a way that uh, exposes the church and recognizes your great love, uh, your great love for the church. And um, I just thought I would, I just thought I would acknowledge acknowledge that, and to continue to encourage you, honestly, in whatever direction you decide. But um, naturally, uh, you know, we would love to have you in the Academy of Homiletics. Thank you. You know, um, Dr. Harris, we know Du Bois talk about this two-ness that happens with the African-American. Do you think that a lot of this has to do with our own silent plane that we operate, um, that is challenging to operate in our authentic self, because we seemingly in America are always operating in this two-ness type of, of consciousness, this dual comp consciousness, if we can call it that? Yeah, no, Bishop, you're absolutely right. It, you know, the boys calls it double consciousness, and uh, and, and two-ness, as you say. You know, you are you are American, but you're also black. Uh, you know, and because of that, I mean, you have some modicum of freedom, but you've also been a slave, and the the slavocracy and slavery uh, follows us. I mean, one of the great quotes uh, in the book, I use it as an epigraph. Um, by uh, Sojourner Truth, uh, uh, and, and, and listen to the brilliance of Sojourner Truth. I, I'm not even sure in my research that Sojourner Truth could read, but Sojourner Truth um, says and writes about slavery. She says, what evil, what evil has slavery not done? Mm. Mm. This is clearly, uh, you know, American chattel slavery is an evil. It is an evil. And it must be addressed, um, you know, in, in, in that, in, in that, in, in that sense. And, and, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a wickedness in high places. Mm. Um, it, it's, a, you know, it's, a, it, it's, it's antithetical, uh, to the meaning and love of God. Yes. Um, and, 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 and I'm uh, in talking, I'm thinking of what Martin Luther King said. Uh, and, and, you know, King is one of our most polished, most loving, most caring black theologians uh, that have ever been produced. And King says in his letter from Birmingham jail, 
He says, I walk past the white church and I see their steeples spiraling toward heaven. <laughs> and I wonder, who is their God? <laughs> listen, listen, I'm, the point I'm making is this. The point I'm making, and this is very critical. The point I'm making is that, um, you know, and I can't tell these people, what, but, but the white church must address the injustices and the evils that exist in our society and our culture. And they don't. They don't even see it that way. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, the, the white ministers who try to address these things are often put out of their churches. I'm, I'm clearly uh, convinced that um, the, the, uh, the new book that, that just came out by one of, uh, one of my former students, Tony Ball, that argues that white supremacy is a religion. Mm. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting that, um, you know, it, it, it baffles me. It just baffles me that we have this whole segment of people who go to church every Sunday and praise God and read the scriptures and uh, put on uh, religious garb and all of that and go right out and treat people like uh, some of the people in the in the Senate and in the Congress and some of the people in uh, in, in white pulpits all across America. I don't I don't I don't want to uh, focus on these people, but the truth of the matter is, uh, everybody uh, tends to uh, benefit in one way or another. From the suffering of black people mm -hmm. mm. and i think white people are the chief beneficiaries yes mm. of black suffering wow mm. this is great let's give that a hand That's it. wow 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 anything else y'all would like to say archbishop i just had one thing i wanted dr harris to talk a little bit about um there's a piece in the um in your book where you talk about how you were preaching, I think you were in your 20s, and you were preaching and you started quoting some things from James Cone and two people got up and walked out and then you felt like they wanted you to preach pie in the sky as opposed to what was really in your heart. And you talked about how they wanted you to consider their pain, but you had pain even though you were delivering the message to them. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely, sir. And it, it wasn't necessarily, um, I wasn't necessarily, it wasn't my, I mean, it's happened throughout my ministry. Mm -hmm. um, but the truth of the matter is, um, you know, let me just say uh, for the record, you know, because I'm a student of the black church, the black church is basically very uh, conservative, even though it's not uh, necessarily associated with any conservative convention like the Southern Baptist Convention or whatever. Mm -hmm. But it is still conservative in its philosophy, its ideology, and in its theology. And there, there are uh, uh, more and more people uh, in the church, historically and even today, who try to distance themselves from liberation theology. Mm. Not, not, the point I'd like to make is um, you cannot be a Christian without focusing on liberation. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. 
and and you cannot claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ and propagate the suffering and pain of others. Now, the point is, we have people doing this all the time. We have folks, you know, in the church, in the churches all around. I mean, I'm thinking of uh, early on in my ministry. I remember when some of the uh, some of the white evangelicals went to uh, uh, went to South Africa during apartheid, and they came back and said they saw no suffering, no injustice. <laughs> this is in the in the middle and in the heat of of apartheid, and you know, it it it, it is uh, it is extraordinary. It is amazing. But one of the things we have to understand is that the, the 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 white church has always been in complicity with American injustice and American unfairness. Mm. The, the church, the, the, uh, I hope it's not news to any of you, but the white church owns slaves. That's mm -hmm. true. Yeah, say that again, Dr. Harris. Say that again. The white church owns slaves. And not only did they own slaves, but they were just like Jefferson. Yeah. They traded slaves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, I want to make a, a small distinction. It's one thing to, to own slaves, but it's an even worse thing Seldom. to be a slave trader. And black people, black people feared being traded because what that meant bishop is that folk would be separated from their families mm -hmm. children would be separated from their mothers i mean uh, uh slaves in the upper part of the united states like let's say uh, virginia and maryland would dread mm. even the possibility of being of being uh traded to uh a slave owner in Mississippi or Louisiana. Yes. Because Louisiana was considered the most um, evil mm -hmm. of American states when it came to slaves. Slavery, yeah. And when it came to slavery. But slavery, by its very nature, you know, is inhuman. It is inhuman to, to enslave another human being. And I think that uh, that's what we've had to deal with as a people, historically and continuously. And, uh, and, and so uh, let me just say that I think it's very critical that, that the black church talks about these things, focuses on these things. And I will confess to you tonight that, um, that I've been talking about these things during my entire ministry uh, in the church, my entire pastorate. But... The black church has not loved me for it. Mm. Okay, the black church has given me no accolades, no anniversaries, mm. no rewards for pointing out the condition of black people in America. Mm. Wow! And and the reason I say that is because, unfortunately, and too often, you know, the church rewards a kind of pie-in-the-sky uh, theology and philosophy mm -hmm. and sermonic discourse. Mm -hmm. But now, I don't have anything 
uh, uh, I don't have any problems with the notion of of, uh, of eschatology and all of these other kinds of things. But I do think that as black people, it is fair to say that we want our piece of the pie now down here, not just in the hereafter. Right. I love it. I love it. Prophet Joshua, what do you want to say? You know, Master Prophet Dr. James Henry Harris, this is powerful. You know, I'm I'm right here, Dr. Harrison. You you've been this is good. Um, preaching is when silence is not silence. You know, you you begin to speak about how it is at once metaphorical and ironic. Uh, uh, Dr. Harris, but there's a point I wanted to bring here, that the invisibility of black people is a reality the black preacher must always address, as is the persistence of their suffering. This is complicated by the fact that in America, black suffering is not considered suffering, not physically, sociologically, psychologically, or theologically. It is considered something else by white America and even by the black preacher who refuses to see everyone around them in some type of pain. You know, Dr. Harris, this here is powerful. And um, I just wanted to share, Dr. Harris, that the people of God, if they would like, they can go and get your book because this here is, I mean, this book, Dr. Harris, is what we, this is our wake up call. This book is our alarm clock um, to wake up and rise up into who we are. Yeah, I think that the book completely opens up on a conversation that people are usually uncomfortable in yes. having. Because I think that even when you start talking about um, not being liked for the conversation that you bring up, nobody likes to be made uncomfortable even in the discomfort that they're already in. You know, you can be in an uncomfortable situation, but your body can settle into it type of way. And it's almost like as we've managed to accomplish and achieve all the things we've managed to accomplish and achieve under oppression, under suffering, dealing with grief on a daily basis, I think that what happens is there's a, a portion of it that nobody wants to discuss. Um, I think that as black people, again, they don't necessarily want that veil to be removed. They don't want to have to necessarily deal with that. But then also on the other side, I couldn't imagine being a white person and dealing with the horrible person that I arguably am, even whether that's because of my complicit silence or how I'm benefiting from white supremacy on a regular basis and choose to ignore it. For me to acknowledge that, that would almost make the whole world around me crumble, where now I start looking at this America that's so, you know, built by all of these people that we enslave, that was, you know, built mm -hmm. by the people, the very people that we oppress, so much so that we'll try to separate black history from American history, but there is no American history without the black people. Yeah. And, and so it's one of those, it's a conversation that's needed, but it's not being had. Wow. You're absolutely correct. Um, so, Dr. Harris, I want to thank you. I, I know um, I know the time is just about up, but I want to thank you because in your work, you really begin to, what I saw in this work, you began to really cover for us how invisible or behind the veil we are as black people. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And though it may look cute, it is really pain. Mm -hmm. And we've learned how to normalize ourselves. Mm -hmm. You know, I even in our theology, you know, um, you know, don't let the flesh be seen. Mm -hmm. right, you know, right, right. Study to be silent. Yes. Amen. You know, learn how to be, learn how to um, be seen but not heard. Mm -hmm. You know, when you think about it, we were taught um, to, we, we were taught to not only manage the silence, but to normalize it like it is the norm mm -hmm. and allow our songs to be stolen, our literary property to be stolen, mm -hmm. you know, our genius to be denied in spaces. And what I love about this work is that it began to look at how much of my life I have normalized but has been silent pain in disguise. Mm -hmm. wow. That I've learned to live in the pain, manage the pain in order to survive in the whiteness of America. Mm -hmm. Amen. Now, do you think that in speaking with that and speaking with what everyone has um, aforementioned, there's a portion in the book that speaks to uh, the preachers that says things like, I feel your pain. Uh, when you hurt, I hurt. I know how you feel. And I love what you said. You called it ubiqu ubiquitous, omniscient, I is blasphemous. And I, I just thought that was so powerful in that when we're coming to church, we, we're coming there, preach Christ. I, I love that you said that in the, in the book. You said, stop um, posturing and just preach Christ. You don't know my pain. <laughs> you mm. don't know what I've been through. And how, how dare you assume the role of God? And I think sometimes because systematically uh, as a race of people, we don't have, we tend not to have power in powerful rooms, but in the church room, that's their, that's the powerful room. So they want to maintain that power. I don't know where, was that your trajectory of thought or what were your thoughts on that? Dr. Harris. No, listen, you're absolutely correct. You're absolutely correct. Very perceptive. Uh, you, you are, you are, you're spot on. I mean, you really uh, captured, um, you know, what I was, what I was saying and what I was trying to say. Let me just say that it's, that you may have said it much better than I did. I doubt that. Okay. <laughs> and I say that because the, the, the reader, the reader often understands the writer better than he understands himself. Wow. Mm. <laughs> so, so, um, uh, so, Ms., uh, uh, this is Elder Bratton, right? Yes, correct. Ms. Bratton, yes. So you have, yes, no, you, you put your finger on it, and that was, that was, uh, you, you're absolutely right. Absolutely right in your analysis and in your understanding of what I was, uh, what I was trying to say. Excellent. Wow. Bishop, Yes. You know, I think we saw an example of that when you were at the church and the gentleman, the gentleman got up to, to uh, I guess, express the suffering of the crowd. <laughs> and you shared with him when you were raising the offering and the gentleman spoke up trying to th that false sense of suffer or understanding of suffering of a group. But you don't have a clue. You have no clue. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
And, and when you think about it, the oppressor always wants to speak for us. Right. Mm. Yes. right. Yes. Mm. Always want to define our pain, Absolutely. saying they know, but they have never, they have not lived in this black skin. And it doesn't feel the same. It's easier to take when it's them talking to them. It's very difficult for them to take when they have to hear it from us. I think it, that, but I think that they do that in order to navigate the apology and navigate around not just the apology, but what are you going to do about the damage that you've caused? Because without acknowledgement, we're just, it's just words in the air floating around. Without Simple some kind words. of steps to right. change or to uh, level the playing field, what, what, are the, what does that mean? Well, you know, we might be witnessing, and this is why I think this book is key right now, we might be witnessing, as Dr. Um, as um, Reverend Carlton Pearson would say, that white people are collectively having a nervous breakdown. Oh, for wow. sure. Yeah. And no, January 6th is starting to, we right. looked at yeah. January 6th, right. they were climbing the walls. What would you say about that when you thought about, when you saw January 6th, <laughs> Dr. Harris, I wanna know, what was your views or what did you see happening in this nation? Yes, well, thank you for that, uh, thank you for that question. Um, Clearly, um, you know, I, I saw um, a kind of rising up of white supremacy in addition to the fact that um, I, I think that, uh, that, uh, that the previous speaker said it correctly, and that is that, um, you know, whites uh, feel that their absolute control and absolute power is being uh, is being diminished, and I think that the recent census uh, yeah. has pretty much verified it. That uh, you know, and and I've talked about this. I talked about this uh, with other people, people in my own church, with Dr. McSwine and others, and that is that uh, white people, you know, um, pretty much have have. Uh, come to the understanding or the conclusion that they will no longer be in control, they will no longer be in power in this nation, you know, in the next 10, 20 years. And they are doing everything they can to try to stop it. Now, um, and listen, let's face it, uh, the, the reason that, um, uh, that, that uh, you all, you all's president, the president that uh, came out of out of uh, this um, uh, this high tower in in uh, Manhattan. I won't call his name, but you all know who he is. <laughs> that, 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 that you all's president tapped into the racism yes, that's did. embedded in America. Yes, he did. Mm -hmm. And that's yes, how he, he became did. president. He tapped into the white supremacy. He tapped into the racism. He tapped into the uh, the the feeling that people are losing grip, losing power. He tapped into that, and that's how he was able uh, to rise to the level of president of the United States. And but he, you know, what he was able to do was pull together all of the racists, all of the white supremacists, that's right. all of the people who are all of the people who are against this group and against this and against that. And you know, they came together. Now the real problem now today is that we have these state legislatures all across America who are trying to discount the black vote. 
Mm-hmm. And that is that is something that we all need to be very cognizant of. See, these people are very, very upset now that, um, you know, that Georgia was able to get uh, two Democratic senators and all of these other folks. And they're very upset about all of this. And they're trying to interfere with uh, counting the votes with legitimate, legitimate votes and that kind of thing. And this is why you have state after state now, uh, you know, making these laws saying all kinds of crazy stuff like you can't even have a sandwich when you're in line to vote right. you can't have a bottle of water, water. Right. what is that all of this crazy. other crazy stuff in order to discourage in order to discourage black people from voting i'm saying to us tonight in the spirit of Fannie Lou Hamer mm. we need to vote we need to vote like never before and don't be discouraged by any of these acts that states are trying to put in place to keep our people from voting Wow. A lot of people gave their lives. A lot of people died so that we would yeah, have the right to vote. Right. That's and true. I think it's a crime mm-hmm. for black people, for our young people and others. It's a crime. It's criminal for us no. to not exercise our no. right to vote. To vote. Amen. Get out there and vote because too many people have died for us to have that right. Wow. Well, this too is one of people. our elders. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, what'd you say, doctor? I said too many people have suffered. Too many people have suffered and too many people have given their lives so that we so that we could vote. And and we, we have to take that very seriously. That's the only way we can help transform America and to make a difference and to make a change in our nation. Yes. Make a difference. All right. Any last words before we close tonight from any um one? Uh, yeah, actually. I wanted to speak to um, Dr. Harris about the underside of the culture and how do we reverse that um, from going from being the underside of the culture to being the conqueror of the culture since everybody already takes the black culture in its entirety? Yeah, no, that, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, I use that language, the, I use the language of underside of, underside of culture because we have been uh, you know, treated as the underbelly of America in such a negative, uh, such a negative way, and black people have been um, denigrated, uh, mistreated, um, vilified, demonized, all of these things. And and let me just say for the record that if there is a holy people in America, hmm. if there is a righteous people in America. If there is a godly people in America, then it is black people. Black people are the closest human beings to God that we're going to ever meet and encounter. Mm. That's, that's my philosophy, and that's my that's my that's my perspective. And you know, and we are kind people. I don't know any people who are any kinder mm-hmm. and any nicer and any more hospitable. Than, than black people. And black people, in the language of Franz Fanon, Joshua, and Jessica, black people, no matter how bad they've been treated, black people still love white people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We are loving people. Mm. And, and we're kind and all of those kinds of things. And, you know, 
this is why the whole issue of black suffering is so difficult for people. Somebody asked me last week, and uh, I, I said we would talk about this, we would think about it and pray about it. But somebody asked me this question, and um, that was, uh, they asked me, why does God allow for black people to suffer so much? Mm. That's a question. Uh, that's a question uh, for for Bishop Jordan and for his young upcoming Bishop Joshua Jordan as well. That's a question to be that's a question to be pondered by the theologians of of today and of tomorrow. Um, but but it is a it is a, a critical a critical question, and I'm sure. Uh, it's a painful question for a lot of black people who live and suffer in pain uh, every single day. And it's not just, see, uh, my, my, my initial thinking is that it, it, is not, it is not something that God allows necessarily. It is something that, uh, that, that, that some of, of God's people propagate and perpetuate against black people, okay? Um, and as I have said, as I have said before, that, um, you know, the white church has always been in complicity with black suffering, always, from slavery to the present time. Mm. And yet these people stand up Sunday after Sunday and talk about God and, and so forth. Um, and and you, all, you know the story you, and you know the experience. And you've had the experience. I just think it's time for us as black people to start speaking up, to start standing up, to start um, not only acknowledging the suffering and acknowledging the pain, but um, you know, but resisting uh, some of the external forces that are against us and keep tries to keep pushing us down. Like I said, and, and like uh, Joshua was putting on the back of the book, um, and I say this, uh, I say this in the early pages of the book, that um, you know, that that these folk have to take their their knees off the necks of black people and off the rib cages of black people. Mm -hmm. I think that the death, I think the death of George Floyd and the death of Breonna Taylor made that very, very explicit and, uh, and, and, and created a new consciousness on the part of all of us. Listen, uh, 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 Bishop Jordan, there were some young people that were telling me in my classes at Virginia Union and other places, uh, this is maybe around 15 years ago, this is uh, right before the election of Obama and, and, and during the Obama uh, first years, you know, there were black people who were in denial of their own suffering. There were black people who were denying the fact that that racism was real in this nation. There were, there were black people, young, young, you know, younger blacks saying that, uh, no, you know, that stuff is gone. It's old. Civil rights is over, this and that and so forth. And I think I think that many of them, all of them have had to retract that statement and that philosophy. And once it was shown around the world that this uh, this young white policeman 
who weighed 140 pounds, 135 or 40 pounds, and George Floyd weighed 220 pounds mm -hmm. Mm. with his neck on, with his, his knee on his neck for over nine minutes. Yes. Mm -hmm. You see, that is, to me, that is the symbol of evil. Mm -hmm. Yes. The symbol. Okay. Great. Okay, anyone else? Any other thoughts? That's good. You know, I, in my profession, I'm a, I'm a dean of students, but in an elementary junior high school, and I do weekly seminars with my junior high school students about character and development. And I just want to uh, say that when you were talking about voting, one time after, at the end of each lecture, the students have opportunities to ask questions. So they said, well, Dean Bratton, what is what is something powerful that we can do that can change this world? And, you know, there's a lot of different answers, but I just wanted to go real simple with them to give them something to hold on to. And I said, the most powerful thing you can do is vote. And it was like, oh, we're not 18, we can vote. I said, no, I want you to vote in any type of, I want you to vote for American Idol. I want you to vote in the vote. I want you to practice voting practice so it. that when you get to be 18, it'll be so a part of the fabric of who you are mm. that it won't even be a second, a second thought. Yes, I'm going to vote for the garbage collector. Yes, I'm going to vote for the dog. I'm going to mm. vote on every level mm -hmm. of every office that I am afforded to. And I think that it starts when we start speaking these things and planting these seeds Amen. in our children while they're young, while the soil is nice and soft and supple, and we can plant those seeds down deep and keep watering and nurturing it and let them see the fruit of what voting can bring. It can mm. bring about your ideas, it can bring yes. about, and it gives you a voice. And one day you might want to run for something and you're going to need and call on the people who look like you to support you. So why not be on the opposite end of that? So. That was my take of, of what you were speaking about and the importance of voting. Mm. Well, that's good. Thank Use, you so much. Using voting as a practice. Yes. Yeah. Even in preschool, right. kindergarten, Absolutely. class president, class, class president. whatever. Whatever. Yeah. whatever. Yeah. Even, even maybe a family vote. Where are we going to go vacation? Yes. Your voice can make a difference. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. So that we don't. Voice need to be heard. Yeah, mm -hmm. so that we don't learn. Because many of us don't even vote in the primaries. Right. No. Because we never practiced. We don't practice no voting. Right. Yeah. Important. That's a very good point. Okay, um, Joshua and Jessica, any last words? You know, Dr. Harris, again, this book is just powerful. I encourage everybody, if you can get your hands on it, you certainly want to. This opened up so much dialogue for myself and Joshua, even as we were reading the book and just beginning to look at um, a question that we begin to pose is what would be possible for our community if, if we could get their knees off of our necks and our backs and our rib cages. Look what was possible. I was talking to Joshua about Lewis Latimer, and if anybody is familiar, um, he invented the filaments for the light bulb, uh, which was a better way to do it than Thomas Jefferson. And one of the things that I was looking at in reading about Lewis Latimer, and there was a sketch that he drew, and it was a sketch of him on like a, a tightrope. And on the one side of the tightrope was his, like he was holding like a balance thing. And on one side it was a clock, you know, with time. And on the other side it was the tip of a pen. And it was like representing him and his inventions and everything. And he was in a space where even he was present 
to his suffering in the space that he was in. And so to be able to invent the way he invented and think the way he thought amongst all of those white people in that space of oppression and knowing that his only value was in inventing and so forth, just looking at still what he was able to create. And it really had me in the dialogue of, look at what our people have been able to create and do under suffering, in, in states of constant grief almost, in states of constant suffering. What else would be possible had we not had this additional burden, this pressure, this weight of that daily suffering and pain on us? Excellent. Thank you. So, um, Dr. Harris, tell us what I, 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 is it a rumor that you have another book in the works that's getting ready to come out? Oh, listen. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not a, it's, it's not a rumor. It's, it, it, but the, but the black church is good. The black church is good at rumors, though. <laughs> but this is a, this is a fact. Yeah, I have another book coming out October 26th. Wow. Um, yeah, and uh, it's and and I would um, I would encourage uh, you all to pre-order it. It's also uh, coming out uh, from Fortress Press. Um, the title of the book is uh, "In the Letter N," and uh, the subtitle is. Um, my experience of racism, uh, my, my encounter with racism, and the forbidden word in an American classic. Wow. Uh, so it, it's listed in Fortress's new catalog on the theology and ethics. I'll hold this up to your camera. I don't know if, uh, if, uh, if the uh, administrator can make it uh, larger, but this is the cover. Yes. Of, um, and I will, uh, I will send them a picture of the book. Um, I will forward them the email you sent me in, my encounter with racism and the forbidden word in the American culture. And um, I will um, send this to you, Obed, right now, and so that they can um, put this up. And what, will you, um, what, what are some of the things you're gonna be covering around this work, Dr. Harris? Um, well, listen, thank you, uh, Bishop, for first for mentioning it and bringing it up. Um, this, this book is a continuation of, uh, of, of, of my, uh, you know, my work in dealing with, uh, racism and injustice and other kinds of things. It's an easier read, a, a bit uh, easier read than, uh, than black suffering, even though black suffering is an easy read because it's because it's, uh, it's interspersed with um, with stories, short stories. But this particular book is mainly what we would call a memoir. Okay, it's uh, and a memoir is a, a slice of one's life in time. So this book is about that. Let me just give you a, a brief overview. Um, when when I was uh, when I was 53 years old, uh, I, I went back to school and earned a master's degree in English literature. And um, one of the seminars that I had to take to um, uh, to earn that master's degree was, uh, in addition to uh, some seminars in uh, short story writing and narrative writing, I also took uh, a seminar on 
uh, the writings of Mark Twain. Mm. And the, the um, and, and the key piece in that was um, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. So uh, it was it was a seminar that focused ninety uh, percent on this one writing by Twain, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. I was the only um, I was the only black in the class. I was the only um, I was I was the only minority in the class. I was the only black male in the class, the only black in the class. And uh, everybody else in the class was uh, was uh, Caucasian European white. And uh, for those who may or may not have read Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, I had not read the book and I was I was already uh, 53. The book uses um, the, the the book uses uh, the N word, and I'm going to say because in the book that the, the word is spelled out, so the book uses the word nigger 222 times. <laughs> really? Almost on every page. <laughs> you cannot read Adventures of Huckleberry Finn without encountering the word nigger 222 times, almost on every page of the book. And so it's one thing to read to read that word. But it's another thing to hear the word audibleized and oralized every single day. Mm. And, and I'm saying, uh, and, and white people in that class, they had the cover of the book. So everybody in the class got to use the word uh, because the word was embedded in the book itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, the very first day of class, the professor opens up the class by saying he wants everybody to recite a 250-word passage from the book uh, by the end of class, okay? And um, so that was my dilemma throughout the class because I knew I was not going to read a passage from that book to a whole class of white folk using the word nigger. <laughs> well, that's so, right. So, so when, the time came, when the time came for me uh, to recite my passage, I stood up before the class and I recited a poem by uh, County Cullen, and I recited a poem uh, by Langston Hughes. There are words like freedom, sweet and wonderful to say on my heartstrings, freedom rings all day, every day. There are words like liberty that almost make me cry. If you had known what I know, you would know why. Mm. And that's how I ended my, my uh, association with that class. <laughs> and with that poem, I say in the book, with that poem, I earned the uh, coveted Master of Arts degree in English literature. Mm. Wow. wow. So you really got to see how our literature is embedded with racism, with American literature. Absolutely. And that's what you'll see in the book, uh, in uh, my encounter with racism. That's exactly what that book is about. And that's that's how I lived it. I mean, I lived that book for a whole semester. And you can see embedded in the end on the picture you have on the screen mm-hmm. is uh, Jim, the black face, and Huck, the, the white boy on the other side. Mm-hmm. That's, so that's Jim and Huck uh, embedded in in the letter N. Wow. 
It's Powerful. Over, over 200 times in that book. You know, and it, this is good. And, and, and you can begin to start, you know, when you start looking at race, you know, once you become conscious, see, Dr. Harris mm -hmm. has already pulled back the veil. So he, mm -hmm. he's going into the class as a conscious black man. Absolutely. So he is looking at this through a lens of consciousness that is really exposing this, but look how much life he had to live to become this conscious. Mm -hmm. So it wouldn't have been normalized. But imagine our young people at 23 taking a class like that that has never been through liberation theology, mm -hmm. have not sat in a black church, haven't sat under a black preacher, mm -hmm. and just went through the educational system, mm -hmm. they would begin to groom them to co-sign on white supremacy, and they don't even realize they're co-signing on it. Mm -hmm. And finance that's, that's, their own oppression. Mm -hmm. That's powerful, you're absolutely correct. But let me just also note, now this book is taught in middle school and high school. Yes, it is, it is. In schools all around America. Yes. So, so it, starts really, it starts really early. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay, very, very early. And it's often taught by uh, teachers who are racist themselves. Mm -hmm. They don't even know how to teach the world. Mm. Absolutely. And, and that's unfortunate. Wow, this is, this is great. Okay, thank you, Dr. Harris. We're gonna have to have you back again and um, thank you for this. Uh, we got to have him back to talk about the tyranny of the Absolutely. text. We got to get him to come back and talk about um, No Longer Bound. Mm. Yeah. We've got to have him come back and um, share with us. Um, here's, here's a number of other books. Um, Preaching Liberation. Preaching Liberation, yeah. And so uh, uh, I had the pleasure of having a class with... Uh, <laughs> Dr. Harris, um, Joshua, how many classes did you have with Dr. Harris? I had at least, I, I had two, do, uh, two with Dr. Harris, Master Prophet, and um, I wish there was so much more. Amen. So um, we, were, we were blessed. Elder Bratt and I yeah. were in his class together with church administration. Yeah, we had a good time. And um, we had a great time in his class. And um, I pray that those of you, y'all are starting, y'all be there for the next three years at Virginia Union STVU. At some point, you will be experiencing Dr. Harris. But if you get around not experiencing Dr. Harris at STVU, we're going to make sure you experience him right here on this platform. Amen. Absolutely. That you can get the wisdom of this great mind. Amen. Well, thank you, Dr. Harris. And um, you will be hearing from us later on. Thank you. Uh, listen, uh, listen, let me just say, let me just say to you, uh, um, Bishop Jordan, uh, I want to thank you for your work and thank you for the opportunity to be able to uh, be exposed to your audience. And uh, thank you for the work that you do in uh, Zoe Ministries and um, how you continue to help people um, around the country and around the nation. Um, so, um, again, I want to thank you and thank you for continuing to uh, send students uh, to the School of Theology at Virginia Union and um, continuing to um, broach these important and critical topics um, in black life. And I, I want to thank you for everything you do in terms of helping to promote uh, black suffering and some of the books that I've written. We need to continue uh, because of people like you, these books can be heard and they can be read.
Uh, but without uh, without people like you and the platform that you have, uh, these books will will just collect dust. Yes. And so uh, to you, I'm so grateful and so thankful uh, for this opportunity. Yes. And how can people follow you? Do you have a website, Dr. Harris, so people can know when you're on, when you're doing podcasts or anything of that nature? Um, yes, but I don't um, um, I don't always know. Donna Rogers, you're on. Can you can you give out that information or can you be heard? I see Donna is muted, okay. but you can really follow us. You can. Donna, can you speak now? Yes. Okay, we don't hear Donna. What platform is she's on? I can hear her, but I don't know. I can't hear her. Obed, can, can she be heard? He is shaking his head no. no. Okay. All right. Uh, okay. Well, then, uh, Donna, you tell me, and I'll, and I'll mouth what you were saying. <laughs> the church's website is... The church's website, sbcwestend.com, sbcwestend.com. You can tune in to a lot of my what I have to say and messages. I'm uh, in the process of developing um, some other things that will be uh, will be made available. I do encourage people right now though, uh, to you know to read the books and then um, let that be. Um, and, and then we'll vector from there into much more uh, social media platforms. But SBC, uh, SBCWestEnd.com. Okay. Uh, you, can follow, you can follow us there. Okay, and we'll make sure it's, uh, we get that address and we'll put it on for the podcast. And um, Dr. Harris was also on our early podcast. When we first started doing podcasts, he came on and spoke about the tyranny of the text. So you need to go back and listen to that podcast. And um, many people got the book during that time. Mm -hmm. And also we want you to spread the word. But we will be having Dr. Harris back because this conversation is nowhere near um, done with. Mm -hmm. We're, fact, just warming up. And, um, and, and when you begin to look at it, um, Dr. Kelly Douglas talks about how... Germans, because their numbers were diminishing, mm -hmm. how they started creating this whole myth of whiteness in order to begin to increase their numbers, okay? And so all of a sudden, Irish, and, you know, and there's a book that when the Irish became white, mm -hmm. there is a book out of the when the Irish became white. So you have to understand all of these subcultures mm -hmm became white in order to keep the slaveocracy mm -hmm. of black people and to keep it operative and to keep us oppressed. And so this is systemic. This is, this is in the very systems that we live in. We're going to go out to work tomorrow morning inside this cesspool of a system. Mm. And this is why books like Black Suffering, Dr. James Henry Harris, um, Dr. James Cone talks about how the black man um, just about demonstrates the closeness of Christ because he's the only one in America that has hung on a tree. Right. And so when you begin to look at it, 
there is something to be said mm. about our blackness in America when it pricks the consciousness of white supremacy. But I like the point that Dr. Harris put that I've got to really begin to visit, to consider white supremacy as a religion. Yeah. And why is it in the black church mm -hmm. when it came to our ushers in handling the money, right. why did our ushers have white gloves and not black gloves? There you go. <laughs> white gloves. Dr. Harris is smiling. <laughs> <laughs> why, why is it that, why is it that on, uh, so white people can be white until St. Patrick's Day, and then they step out of the whiteness and now they're Irish. And on Christopher Columbus, they step out of the whiteness and now they're Italian. It's like, how do you, how, how is that, how do, how do we allow that? Like, yeah, well, it's allowed because that's, because that's privilege and privilege. it's the way the economy spends and it's the way the world works. Right. I, I, I got hung up on a questionnaire because they said, um, for Hispanic, they wanted to know, were you white and Hispanic? And I'm saying, I'm sitting here trying to figure out this questionnaire. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. This oh, thing yes. is, this is starting to get really deep, this whole concept of whiteness. Mm -hmm. So, um, Dr. Harris, I pray you do a book on whiteness slash blackness. Because, <laughs> you know, if you think about it, whiteness as a religion, this is something that the prophets in the scripture, in the first covenant, or the First Testament will be tearing down the idols mm -hmm. of that which defied the God of Israel. So, I mean, this is, you, you have my mind kind of stirred here, Dr. Harris. Listen, Bishop, I do want to say that the, 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 the book by that title is by one of my former students, Tony Paul, White, White, White Supremacy is a Religion. That's, Tony Paul? Uh, Tony Ball, B-A-U-G-H. Uh, that book just came out. And uh, so that's, you know, we've talked about some of the same things, but, but that's the title of his new book. It's by Wiffenstock. B-O-U-G-H. And the title of the book is? A White Supremacy is a Religion. It's an essay and, it's, and other essays. Um, and uh, he's a graduate of STVU and also uh, Joshua, a graduate of Boston University. With well, the THM. Wow, THM. Okay, great. So I'm going to definitely be um, getting that book also today. And um, we're going to have to figure out how to bring him on this platform. Absolutely. Absolutely. And have him share. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Harris. Thank you for your time. And um, we'll be talking with you, if not later on tonight, definitely tomorrow. Thank you. Thank you, Bishop Jordan. Thank you so much. And tell, your you, sister, and tell your sister I said hello. We got to have her, too. His sister can preach. Mm. You need to yes. hear his sister yeah, my, my, can preach. I heard her. Sister-in-law, Charlotte. Yeah, she's, yeah, sister-in-law, Dr. Sister Charlotte. Charlotte. She's, yeah. she's watching right now. Yes, she can preach. Y'all got to, we got to have her here. Yes, wow. Dr. Yes, Charlotte yes. McSwine. Um, nice. Listen, with some great voices you're going to have coming through here. And um, this is just a, just a, this is just the beginning. All right. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Harris. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you. Y'all have a great evening. Bless Thank you. Sir. Bless you. Amen.
All right. James Henry Harris, amen. God bless you. To keep in touch with Master Prophet E. Bernard Jordan, go to www.bishopjordan.com and follow him on all social media platforms. To get more information about the Prophecology Conference and or more special events, go to www.zoeministries.com or call 888-831-0434. Thank you and stay blessed.